Our reading today is Matthew chapter 5 from verse 17. Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you very much, Dawn, uh, for reading for us. Uh, let me add my welcome to, to Rachel's, to you here in the building, and uh, indeed uh, to those of you at home. Some of the things that Jesus says, and when you stop and think about them, really think about them, uh, they seem overwhelming on the one hand. But, but then at the same time, they can feel hugely exciting at the same time. And th- think, for example, uh, about uh, Jesus' instruction to love your enemies. And you think, really? I've got to love my enemies? And then you might find yourself thinking, but what a world we would have if people loved their enemies. And then there are other things that Jesus says that when you stop and think about them, that they just seem really difficult to understand. They, they seem to raise so many questions, it's just hard to know where to start. Uh, and that's true of the verse at the centre of our section today, verse 18, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear. And at one level you think, you think, well said Jesus, authoritative Bible, yes, good for you Jesus, quite agree. And then you stop a little bit further and you think, hang on, do you mean all of it? I mean all of it still applying? Still applying even to us today? We grapple with these verses Uh, this morning. I I think they're going to have lots to tell us about the way that Jesus engaged with his Bible and by implication the way that we should uh, engage with with ours. Of course, Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament. He refers to it as the law um, or the law and the prophets, both phrases in our verses that that were used in Jesus' day uh, to capture the the whole sweep of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, we work with our Bible. Jesus has provided for the writing of the New Testament. We could look at that in John's Gospel, but we've got plenty to do in our verses. What, what I want to do is, is take this, these three issues. Um, ask, how is the, when we think about the Bible, what, what it is, who it's about, and how it works. Those are our three headings that will just structure our thinking uh, through these verses. So first, the Bible, what it is. Well, Jesus couldn't... Not a bit of it, Jesus says. Not a dot or a jot, not a scratch or a squiggle. 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Even the dots on the I's and the crosses on the T's or the the Hebrew equivalents, uh, even those can't be set aside. It's, It's fixed right down to that level of detail. Now, I, t- I take it that probably Jesus was, was saying these things because some were beginning to wonder if it might not be the case. Uh, wondering maybe if, if the way that Jesus seemed to them to be hanging a bit sort of loose and free to the Sabbath laws meant that, that maybe this wasn't the way that Jesus uh, was operating. And, and people had noticed, hadn't they, that, that Jesus taught with a new authority, a new teaching, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. So maybe they thought that Jesus was arriving with a kind of new broom. You know, out with the old, sweep that away, and in with a brand new set of teachings that Jesus was going to bring. Maybe people were beginning to wonder if if that's the way that Jesus was operating. And of course, many today would agree with the sentiment. Out with the old, in with the new. I, I like this God that Jesus tells us about all love and mercy and grace. I I like Jesus' God in the New Testament. But that Old Testament God, all that vengeance, all all those laws, all those terrible, terrible stories, I, I can't sit with that. Yet it is precisely those Old Testament scriptures with all that law with all of those difficult stories that Jesus says are permanently valid and comprehensively true. More permanent than the mountains. Heaven and earth may pass away, Jesus says, but the the scriptures, they'll still remain. No revisions, no second editions. These are scriptures that persist. What God has said, Jesus declares, stays, said. What, what Jesus is telling us is that, is that this, this Old Testament book, these scriptures, this Bible, it's, it's, not, a, it's not an ordinary book. It's not, not a human creation that um, uh, is culturally conditioned and therefore locked into its time. No, it's supernaturally given. It's God-given. Permanently valid, comprehensively true. But of course, we hesitate with that, don't we? Because we, we really do want it to be just a little bit more selective. Because so many people today would, would, would look back, as it were, at the Old Testament, and they'd say, well, yeah, there are some good bits in there. I mean, I quite like some of the Psalms and so on. But, you know, really, there's lots there that we've moved on from. Lots in the Old Testament that we know doesn't apply anymore. Isn't, isn't, sort of, isn't the way we view things today. Primitive views, old-fashioned views, ancient ways of thinking about things that, well, we've just progressed past those. We need to be selective. We'll keep the good stuff, but obviously move on from some of the rest. And when we do that, do, do you see what we're doing? We're saying, look, when it comes to the Bible... I can make some judgments over it. I can work out 
I can reliably distinguish between the good stuff and the bad stuff, the stuff that's worth keeping and the stuff that's not. I can sieve it and I can determine which is which. In other words, we're, we're sort of saying, listen, I've committed myself to certain truths, certain beliefs, certain convictions, and they allow me to distinguish between what's good and what's bad. But of course, the question that we need to ask is, where do those convictions come from? Where do those beliefs that you have that allow you to make that distinguishing, who gave them to you? And supposing God wanted to challenge you over them, how would he do that? Because he can't challenge you about those fundamental convictions through his word, because you've already said that if his word contradicts you on those convictions, it's your convictions that you'll go with, not his word. We've said in effect, look, I can't be wrong on these things. These are absolutes. And I'm more right than God's word is. See, it raises a really big question, doesn't it? Will, will, will we sieve the Bible or will we let the Bible sieve us? Will we do the picking and choosing, selecting some bits that are worth keeping and others bits that we're going to let go? Or will we let God do the picking and choosing so that he identifies some things in us that are worth keeping? and some things that need to be let go. Some beliefs that we have that he would approve of, and some that he would tell us to change. That, that's what it means to have an authoritative Bible. That's the Bible that Jesus is describing here, a Bible that is comprehensively valid, uh, permanently valid, and comprehensively true. It's a Bible that stands in authority over us, But of course, I can hear you saying, I don't know what you're saying. You're saying, hang on, it doesn't quite look like that, does it? Because there are bits that, that, that we're supposed to leave behind, aren't we? What about all that sort of food laws and, and, and all the sacrifices and, and temples and stuff like that? In fact, doesn't Jesus himself, in, in Mark chapter 7, by, by what he says, aren't we told that he declares all foods clean? How does that fit with not the smallest letter shall disappear. Well, come to a second heading. We've seen that Jesus declares the Bible to be permanently valid and comprehensively true. But, but now, secondly, see who the Bible is all about. And for that, look at verse 17. Do not think, Jesus says, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And, and the key idea is there in those, in those final couple of words, to fulfill them. And the, the sense there is to, is to fill up, to, to, to complete, to fully and completely realize everything that these scriptures were ever intended to convey. Now, when we... When we think about kind of Old Testament prophecies, predictions, we, we kind of get that idea, don't we? Um, so Matthew, Matthew's actually quite big on this. Um, we won't do it, but if you, if you flip back to, to chapter 1, uh, you'd find that in 
um, in declaring to Mary how she was going to become uh, the mother of Jesus. Um, Matthew adds, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And then you move into chapter 2 and you hear about the way that Mary and Joseph took Jesus into Egypt. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Or you push on into chapter 4 where Jesus begins his ministry and goes into Galilee. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the prophet said through the prophet Isaiah. But we get that. You know, a prediction of something that is going to happen gets fulfilled. But, but Jesus is going further than that here. He's, he's not just saying that there are predictions that get fulfilled, but, but there is a sense in which, in which the, the whole shape and sweep of the Old Testament, the, the, very, the very sort of narrative story that, that runs through the Old Testament, all of that gets fulfilled in him. You, you could think of it a bit like foreshadowing and, and reality. You know, yeah, imagine somebody's coming around the corner um, and the sun is behind them and, and you see their shadow on the ground first. But then eventually they come into view. Well, it's something like that here. The, the Old Testament provides the, the, the shadow in advance of Jesus himself coming into view. So that every Old Testament king foreshadows the true king, Jesus Christ. Every Old Testament wise man and wise saying anticipates the arrival of the one who is the very wisdom of God himself. Every Old Testament sacrifice lays the ground for us to understand the one true sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Every Old Testament battle a foretaste of the far mightier spiritual battle that Jesus Christ would fight and will against evil. It's like the Old Testament is kind of in outline and Jesus colours it in for us. Or to change the analogy, it's like the Old Testament is the foundation and the sort of the framework of a building and then Jesus completes the building in order that you can inhabit it. And it's why both Old and New Testaments are needed. Because if the New Testament gives us Jesus, well, it's the Old Testament that gives us the categories in order to be able to understand him. See, when Jesus comes and says, I am the bread of life, we, we kind of get it. You know, that, that somehow you feed upon him. But it's when you read the story of the manna in the wilderness that you really begin to understand the scale of what he is telling us when he says he's the bread of life. Or, or when Paul describes Jesus as the, as the Lamb of God, it sort of makes sense. But we need the Exodus account. We need the story of the Passover and the sacrifices that took place to, to, to understand the full extent of what is meant by that. Um, I've always found this diagram helpful. Um, 
just a very simple diagram of, of, of sort of capturing the way in which everything sort of zeroes in on Jesus. Everything sort of focuses in upon him. All of the Old Testament sort of, sort of prepares the way until it arrives, uh, the arrival of Christ. And then everything since then kind of expands out from Christ. All our understanding, all of our living. All the same categories apply. Sacrifice, wisdom, holiness, God's king, God's people. They're all still there, but now interpreted through the lens of Christ, in whom the scriptures are fulfilled. So we've seen what the Bible is, permanently valid, comprehensively true. We've seen who the Bible is about. Uh, that it's all about Jesus. That's what, what Luke tells us Jesus said to the disciples you know, on the road to Emmaus, you remember? These are the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus told those two travellers. Uh, but now, thirdly, we need to see how the Bible works. Because I think, I think it's different to the way most people think. The commonest way, I guess, that people f- to, to approach the Bible is to see it as some sort of a guide for life, a kind of a source of, of spiritual wisdom, a handbook for, for living life well. Um, and therefore the, the stories in the Bible be something like sort of spiritual versus, versions of, of Aesop's fables. Um, you know, so a bit like the, um, the story of the, the tortoise and the hare, you know, that tells us that the race isn't always to the swift. And if you keep plodding along, you might actually do better than you think. Well, in the same sort of way, the story of David and Goliath teaches us that sometimes it's the little man that comes out on top, and we should take courage and face the giants in our lives. And I worry that's the way that we go. That's how we sort of come to the Old Testament, looking for sort of moral lessons. So, so Nehemiah, well, he teaches us how to be... To, be good to be a wise and organized leader in whatever leading you do. Story of Joseph. Well, Joseph tells us to, to endure suffering and stick on through hard times and remember to forgive people in the end. And Esther, oh Esther, she tells us to risk everything out of our devotion to God. In other words, these stories show us people who did well. And they say, look, see if you can't do likewise. But of course, if that's the way we go, then kind of only one of two things can really happen. We might kid ourselves that actually we're doing rather well and that we're doing a very good imitation of Esther or Joseph or whoever. And then we begin to say, well, I really am, I think I'm rather splendid. I have done quite well. Start patting ourselves on the back, feeling rather smug, looking down on other people who are really are not being very good Esthers at all. Much better than you. That's one way we may go. Pretty unpleasant. Or alternatively, and probably more accurately, if we are honest, we just realise that we can't do it. 
try as we might, we can't turn ourselves into the heroes of the Old Testament. And as we look at what is being asked, well, it just feels overwhelming. And we feel crushed by the astonishing demands that are being made of us. But that's not the way that the Bible was ever intended to work. It's not intended to be a a source book of useful moral examples for us. As we've been seeing and as Jesus tells us, the Old Testament is a book about him. It anticipates him, it explains him, and it is fulfilled by him. For it's Jesus who is the wise leader that Nehemiah anticipates. It's Jesus who is the true Joseph, who endures the ultimate rejection and loss in order to provide salvation for God's people. It's Jesus who is the true Esther, who isn't just willing to sacrifice his position in the palace, but really does give up the heavenly glory that is his by right in order to identify with his people and protect them from destruction. Long before the Old Testament has anything to say to us, we must first hear what it has to say about him, who he is, what he's done for us. And a Christian is someone who who has understood that, who has seen that in Christ a swap takes place so that Jesus takes my guilt and I receive his righteous life. And the reason that I'm not crushed, the reason that you need not be crushed by by all of the demands of the Old Testament is because Jesus has fulfilled them for you. The reason that we're not condemned by all the Old Testament laws and judgments is because Jesus has taken them for you. And when you believe that, when you believe that that is what Jesus has done for you, well, everything, everything changes in that moment. For God's Spirit enters in. God's Word enters in. And and we're born again in a way that makes the extraordinary demands of verse 20 possible. Just look at verse 20 would have been such an enormous shock to Jesus' followers, this verse. When Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus looked as though he was putting heaven out of their reach, beyond them. Because how could you possibly, if the Pharisees couldn't get there, if even the Pharisees couldn't, couldn't hit the mark, then what chance did the rest of us have? You see, I mean, you know how this goes. We hear Pharisees, and, and, and we just go into boo-hiss mode. But, but in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the excellent ones. They were the deeply serious ones. They, they were the people whose, 
whose efforts to, to, to be godly and to be righteous were, were just astonishing. The people saw them as, as the most excellent of religious people, of God-fearing people. And yet here is Jesus saying, you've got, to, you've got to do better than them. You've got to surpass them if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's what this whole next section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to begin next week is really all about. Six contrasts. Each time comparing what you've heard that it was said with what I tell you. And, and, and understand, that we were trying to touch on this last week, understand that Jesus isn't comparing his teaching with the Old Testament law. Now he's comparing it with, with, with what you've heard was said, not what was written. See, what Jesus understands is that, is that the law of the Old Testament has, has been sort of, and I was trying to get at this last week by saying it's been sort of snipped down, made smaller, because it's just been applied in an external way just a limited sort of obedience of the, of the outside of me. So, so when, the, when the Bible says don't commit adultery and the Pharisees say, right, okay, so I mustn't have sex with anyone except my own wife. As long as I do that, I've done it. They're just going for the externals. And Jesus shows them what the law was always intended to mean. He shows them the spirit of the law. He expands it by saying, look, I tell you, if, if you so much as look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you have already committed adultery with her. And suddenly the law is much, much bigger. That's what I was trying to get at with the, if you were here last week, uh, with God's law up on the voil. Jesus expands it, stretches it, takes it to its full extent, shows us what it would look like to obey this through and through, right from the very heart of yourself. And it all seems too much. How could I possibly do that? Love my enemies? Forgive people who persecute me? go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, hold my temper in all circumstances, and do that not just externally, but really want to do it. Do it from the heart. Do it with every fiber of my being, to want all of those things and to do them just spontaneously. How could I do that? And the answer is that you can't. That's why you need Jesus. But the answer is also that you can because that's the kind of saviour that Jesus came to be. To change you and I from the inside by putting his spirit in us. Do you see the paradox here? As long as you go on trying to do it, you'll fail. You get to the point where you say, I can't do it. Jesus, will you be my saviour and will you help me? Well, he will give you his spirit. He'll give you his law written on your heart so that you can do it. Does that excite you? Is that exciting to have a righteousness like that? To be born again with a new heart, one that is able to keep God's law in a way that we never, ever could before? 
hope it excites you to have that kind of righteousness, to live a life like that. It's Lent. 35 days, I have counted, till Easter week begins. How about 35 days in the Bible? 35 particularly determined days in the Scriptures, these Scriptures, the ones that Jesus is so excited that we should engage with, to read them, to find him within them so that we would let him again be the saviour that we really need in order that we might live the life that he really wants. Let me pray for us before we sing. Uh, Father God, um, what a, what a, a glorious vision uh, you set before us uh, in uh, in your holy Bible. A vision for us, uh, first of all, of Christ, uh, one who who fulfilled everything that you have ever intended uh, about the way that a, that a person should live, the heart that a person should have. Uh, and then to, to read of the way that you make uh, Christ's life uh, ours by faith. You unite us with him. And in so doing, you enable us uh, to have new hearts, hearts that can uh, live as you intend a person to live. Uh, Father, would that uh, vision uh, thrill us and excite us? Uh, we are so grateful. Uh, for all that you have done for us in Christ. Help us uh, to receive him fully, uh, to, uh, uh, to meditate on the scriptures that would uh, teach us of him uh, and teach us how to live for him. Uh, and these things we pray in his name. Amen.